Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Stephanie Boulouris. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Research Director Amy DiMartin and Senior Analyst Ala Valente to discuss how the pandemic has impacted resiliency planning. Welcome both. Thanks for having us. Can't wait to talk about resilience. Really excited to join you. So... On the topic of the pandemic's impact on resiliency, we we know that there were so many firms, so many leaders that were caught off guard by the pandemic. But, you know, what were some of the things that firms were lacking most that led to some of the distress that we've seen kind of over the past year plus? So one of the first things that firms ran into that caused distress was what to do with employees. So a lot of firms that we talk to have plans in place to accommodate maybe 30% of employees going home, but not 100% of information workers going home. The equipment, the security in place to make sure that employees could be successful at home. The other thing was what to do with the workers who couldn't go home. Employers really raced to get proper protections in place for those workers who had to work in manufacturing plants or in offices. And then the last thing with employees was kind of this lack of automation. What do you do when your processes aren't fully automated? We talked to clients that had to move file cases into employee homes because they still had to shuffle papers back and forth between employees. We did a survey and 67% of firms still rely on paper to execute critical processes. So this isn't uncommon. And then the other thing is the flip side. So not only did firms have to worry about employees, but they also had to worry about customers. So customers were not acting in normal ways either, especially retailers had to deal with customers who wanted to stay home. So Amy, just to follow up on that question, what you just highlighted is often business executives, IT leaders, they often associate resiliency with just uptime. You know, we're we're using this word a lot. How exactly do you define resiliency? Yeah, Forrester defines business resilience as the ability of an organization to deliver on its vision and brand promise no matter the crisis. So it's not just about uptime. Certainly that's part of it, but it has to do with how different business parts work together in a coordinated response, including employees, how they reach customers, and how they work with third parties. So in the planning, Amy, you had just referenced, you know, like, retailers were sort of shook by the consumers, the, the behavior change of consumers, right? What what industries or maybe even specific firms kind of got it right or did the appropriate planning and understood that resiliency was not just uptime to Steph's question and your response, but broader and were kind of almost well prepared if there were examples of of firms or industries that were prepared for, uh, you know, during during that during the pandemic. Yeah. So one of the one of the fun examples is either Adidas or Adidas, depending on where in the world you're from. Uh, I'm from the U.S., so I mispronounce it and call it Adidas, but they had already invested in 3D printable technology to create better footwear, to design better footwear, and they were able to use it to create 3D printed face shields. 
And they pivoted to making masks, a market in the U.S. that didn't exist prior to COVID. And it is the fastest product line they have ever delivered on this protection technology. So they were able to pivot very quickly using existing technologies that they already used to introduce an entire new, entirely new line. The other example is restaurant wholesalers. They found after restaurants got shuttered because of the pandemic, they didn't have a customer anymore. And they pivoted worldwide, oftentimes using low-code technology to creating delivery at home. Now they had to you know, decrease what they were delivering to the sizes appropriate to homes, but they were able to create and address a new market, those folks who didn't want to go outside their home to get groceries. Another one is Jacoby Medical Center. In September of 2019, they ran an exercise pop-up triage centers in their parking lot. They invited the U.S. Army to join them, and they thought, you know what, let's just test. What if we had an influx of patients? What would we do? How would we handle them? So they created these pop-up medical centers to test it out way before the epicenter of COVID-19 came to New York City. So those are the, those are the kinds of industries and companies that really succeeded during the pandemic. So I think to follow along with that, I'd be curious to ask you both if there were one to two key takeaways or lessons learned. Yeah, Steph, actually, that's a that's a great question. You know, I think that's something that really stands out about the pandemic is um, that it wasn't a, a single event or a single failure, but more so that this was a uh, a cascading event that set off, you know, this domino effect across just about every aspect of our lives. And because of the interconnectedness of the different areas of risk, and here I'm referring to just how closely linked and interdependent all these gears of business really are, that you have organizations that didn't just experience, you know, a, let's say, a supply chain risk or a financial um, risk, but it was something that took down an entire system. And, um, you know, when we talk about systemic risks, and this is an area that we've written about um recently as well, is that these are risks that are really outside of the organization's control. And, you know, they build gradually, but when they materialize, they materialize all at once. And a great example would be something like a multinational organization where, you know, they were hit by um, the financial markets. So, you know, they were experiencing uh, credit crunches and liquidity issues. And then you had these uh, mounting regulations, whether it was stay at home orders or um, different regulations by a country by country or even region by region basis. But then, you know, as well, they were experiencing the um, impact of their supply chain, their broader ecosystem of third parties who they themselves had issues and weren't able to help keep those businesses resilient. And so for me, this takeaway is that, you know, all of these risk areas that we tend to think of as having bookends and manage almost in their own swim lanes, in their own silos, what the pandemic really highlighted is just how interdependent and interconnected they all are. 
A following question to that, one of the things about the pandemic that I find absolutely infuriating is how many companies refer to it as a black swan. It is not a black swan. It was not a black swan. You know, there's this joke that's been uh, going around, which is who could have predicted the the pandemic? And the answer is only every single epidemiologist on the planet. Um, so it, it, it amazes me at how many companies didn't have written pandemic plans. Um, you know, I understand sometimes plans gather dust and you haven't practiced them in a while. It's been 10 years since the last pandemic, but it, it still amazes me at how many companies call it a black swan when, when it clearly wasn't. I'm curious if you've seen any um, self-reflection by companies on that, where they're taking a hard look at their enterprise risk management programs. Are they rethinking them? Um, are they hiring? Are they increasing budgets just to do what some of what you're talking about, which is being better at at identifying and handling large systemic risks, but even just fundamental risk and your your typical event-driven incidents. Yeah, that's that's what's really interesting about this, this whole notion of a black swan or an act of God, um, that it was completely unpredictable. But there's a big difference between unanticipated and unpredictable. And what I find both, you know, unfortunate and surprising is that um, as far back as 2018, you had the World Health Organization, the WHO, talking about uh, what they call disease X. Now, they didn't know what that disease was going to be, but what they did say is that this was going to be a serious international epidemic caused by a pathogen that they didn't quite know what it was yet. But the guidance that they put out was that, look, you know, companies need to be nimble and they need to have a plan. And this was in 2018. So if you are responsible for enterprise risk management, absolutely, you should have had some sort of um, at least a strategy to tackle an event like this. And yet when we looked at um, the 10Ks for like the Fortune 50, I mean, almost no one with the exception, I believe it was Apple, even talked about a possible pandemic risk. And Apple's strategy was to ensure it. So, you know, we're, what we're seeing is that um, the reason why more organizations are starting to realize that they need to both think about these systemic risks, um, you know, these events that are outside of their control, but also they can't call everything an act of God in that catch-all is because their insurance companies aren't letting them do that anymore. Um, you know, there are clauses for force majeures, things you can't foresee, but I mean, how many warnings do you need to get before you say, just because you didn't take enough action or you didn't take action quick enough doesn't mean it was unforeseen and my insurance policy shouldn't be paying for your failures. So I think that's, you know, some of the changes in how insurers are thinking about systemic risks and also um, what they call silent risks are what's driving organizations to think about enterprise strategy for things like pandemics. That's going to be great. I think there's going to be a uh sort of renaissance in risk management over the next few years. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I love that statement, unanticipated versus unexpected, right? So it's just the underline of, you know, of this conversation, really. So what, you know, how have firms, and to your point, Steph, like there's going to be this renaissance here, but like what other things are firms and leaders sort of 
reevaluating, taking a look at so that they can expect the quote unquote unexpected here. Now, one of the first things I think companies are going to have to put in place is the ability to flexibly work from home. You know, we we believe that systemic risks will increase. It's one of the four shocks that every firm will have to deal with in the 2020s. And we see these systemic risks that Allah was talking about increasing, not decreasing. And so we are going to have to get good at being flexible about where our employees can and should work. So being flexibly to work in office, being able to work from home and making those two environments very similar so that there's no productivity lost. The next thing is automation. We've got to get rid of the paper. We've got to move towards more automation in our processes. But of course, that makes us dependent on IT. So that means we've got to really emphasize our dependable IT. Always on, flexible in terms of scale. Anytime an employee or customer needs it, it's there, it's always on, which means we've got to do a lot more things like chaos engineering so that we can unplug the IT and make sure that we really are delivering our services. I think just to follow up on the automation theme too, Amy, I mean, there's there's automation of your core business functions and even your IT functions. Um, I'm curious if you've seen any examples where the pandemic has increased automation of say, core manufacturing processes, industrial systems, transportation, logistics, you name it. Because oftentimes what we see in these critical events is people haven't planned for the people, period. It's not just about working from home, but they're not good at planning for, you know, redundancies or stress or that people are just much more inefficient. Or in the case of the pandemic, um, a large percentage of your workforce getting sick um, or having people to take care of and not being able to come to work um, or having concerns about coming to work. So uh, I'm curious if you have seen automation take off as a way of um, ensuring against that, ensuring against absenteeism, just sort of uh, decreasing the reliance on always having a body to do the work. Yeah, just like you were talking about a renaissance with risk management, I think this this comes with a renaissance to employee experience. What does it really mean to have a, a productive employee? So there, there aren't some great examples about fixing transportation or manufacturing, except for in the design phase where it's, you know, like Adidas and their 3D printable technology. It's the design phase that people are really focusing on right now. How do we get people so that you don't have to exist in the same space and still be creative to create new products? That's really where I'm seeing a lot of emphasis. But you're right. We're going to have to get good at all of the rest of it, too. What about the supply chain? We think about like where some real gaps were during the pandemic and even today as we're recording in April of 2021. What supply chains need to get much better at is being able to both sense and respond to changes. And these are changes in things like market conditions, um, changes in regulations, but also in changes in customer preferences. And, you know, this ability to um, be able to adapt to these new requirements, they have to be able to at least mitigate or minimize potential disruption and move really quickly to do that. But one of the reasons why supply chain kind of got so stuck 
um, during the pandemic is because they're lean, which means that they carry little inventory on hand because it's so easy to replenish inventory, or at least it was. And that what they're doing is they're planning for um, certainty and not for uncertainty. And then you have geographical concentration. So we see things like um, manufacturing or um, even microchips that are all uh, manufacturing is concentrated in one region. And when Asia was the first to shut down, what a lot of firms didn't think about was Yes, I may have a lot of inventory on hand, but am I going to be able to access the parts, the material, and the labor I need to continue this? And here are a couple of examples that um, I thought are really interesting, and uh, they're actually recent examples of supply chain disruption. So, you know, one is IKEA, right? This is a, a company that actually did very well during 2020 because a lot of people brought their offices into the homes. And plus, you know, we were all redecorating and, and focusing on, you know, home improvement. And what IKEA did really well there was that they pivoted to this contactless delivery. So you ordered online, you, you know, went into their store, they would text you when the order was ready, they would tell you which parking spot to pull into, you open up the trunk, they load everything in, and you're done. Like, you, you never had, you know, that contact. And they did really well. But where they're running to issues now is that all of their, or a majority of their products are manufactured in Sweden. They ship them all by ship. And as we heard in the news, it's been another butt of many memes is this whole chaos in the Suez Canal, right? So you had Ikea with like 110 containers on the ship that were stuck there. And not only is this creating disruption for certain product lines that they have now, but after um, the chaos in the Suez, the freight charges, the, the fees for that have increased substantially. So what does IKEA do? Are they going to pass on the cost to their customers? But if their you know, whole value proposition is that they're competing on price, then that's not really tenable. Do they eat the cost? You know, this is something that they're going to have to work out whether that type of manufacturing concentration still makes sense. And this is another example, and I love it because this is one that I totally didn't see coming, ketchup. So, um, you know, some recent headlines have said that ketchup is going to be the 2021 version of toilet paper. So you have a company like Heinz who owns about 70% market share in the ketchup industry. When every, everything was shut down and we were ordering takeout, I mean, even restaurants became, you know, takeout shops, um, we were leaning heavily on those ketchup packets that are not really a big part of their product line. And now even as restaurants are reopening, just our habits have changed, right? We don't want those communal ketchup bottles. We want our own ketchup packets but they don't have enough capacity. They don't have enough um, supply. So now they're ramping up. I, I wanna say they're standing up another couple of uh, manufacturing lines. They need to ramp this up by 25%. But what are restaurants doing in the meantime? They're turning to alternatives. 
sure they're not as you know you could definitely taste the difference but it doesn't matter because now this creates an opportunity for competitors to step in and fill this void and we're now into you know what q6 of this pandemic and if heinz were looking at how consumer preferences have changed they would have said we really should be, you know, maybe balancing out this individual packets, you know, uh, making that a larger part of our product line. So, you know, in a sense, this is a missed opportunity for them. Before we move off of uh, supply chain, I want to uh, ask a question about a related topic, which was just general third party risk. Uh, I mean, there's organizations that have inventory and supply chains, but just your average enterprise might have 300 third-party relationships when you take into account resellers, channel partners. You think about all the different types of partners you might have within IT. And I've had several clients talk about how they were just caught unawares again by all of the dependencies that they had on third parties. And when they were trying to understand the pandemic, they hadn't extended it to the third parties. So, you know, suddenly the, the pandemic starts to blow up in places like India, and now your service provider is sending people to work from home. It's like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, they're, they're not going home to work securely, and suddenly you have security incidents. So I'm curious how you think this will change third-party risk going forward. Yeah, I, you know, excellent question. And I've also seen um, those questions coming through as well. Um, when organizations would think about risks stemming from third-party relationships, we tend to focus on one of two areas. One is that these are IT risks, so some sort of, um, you know, perhaps a cyber attack, and so uh, I can't utilize that vendor anymore. And another is financial risk, right? You know, this this vendor um, goes belly up, and now all of a sudden they're not part of my ecosystem. But I don't think that organizations really focused on the continuity of their third party relationships. Sure, they would ask them if they had a business continuity plan, but, you know, very few asked to see it. Very few asked, how often have you tested this plan? You know, have you updated this plan? Does this plan reflect these new, um, you know, scenarios, right? And so what we're seeing now is not only this focus on understanding the risk of your third parties, but really your third parties have their own third parties and their own third parties. So now you're talking about third parties, fourth parties, fifth party relationships, and you don't realize what an impact it's going to have on your business until all of a sudden that risk, you know, starts bubbling up and you have some sort of, um, you know, disruptive event or even worse yet, um, you're you're being challenged to still provide the same level of service to your own customers, but without the support of that third party ecosystem. I think that another thing that concerns me as well is, um, I mean, we all have COVID fatigue. Everyone just wants this over over with. And there is a lot of hope and optimism right now that with vaccine rollout, that maybe we can return to normal and the crisis will be over. I, I guess what worries me is that a lot of enterprises in their planning as they're designing everything from like their anywhere work strategy to their return to work strategy is that they're not realizing that this is going to become an endemic disease. Like we're not going to wake up one day and COVID is actually gone. Um, So I guess like what advice would you give about kind of treating this more as an endemic disease as opposed to like a crisis that's going to be suddenly over one day, like a hurricane? 
I would say that uh, the one thing that we do need to realize is that this is part of our new reality. The same way when technology became our reality, you know, you can't just dismiss the risks that come with it. Um, sure, we have vaccines, you know, those um vaccination numbers are ramping up we're seeing some really good success but there's still so many unknowns we don't know whether or not oh how long uh the protection will last we don't know whether we're going to need to get boosters or or to you know revaccinate. um we also don't know whether or not um different areas of the world will start to experience the same waves of recovery at the same time. So in the same way that we depend on global partners from around the world, and not every area has the same access to vaccines and has the same, you know, type of regulations around it, we need to factor in that um, we're going to need to do more planning, we're going to need to have more business continuity, and that also we're going to need to make sure that we're monitoring for changes. Because to your point, Steph, you know, there will be, um, you know, other viruses and other health issues that might start to bubble up. And look, you know, this gives us a great playbook if we use it as that. And if if there is any type of silver lining is that hopefully it will help us prepare. So that's what I really hope firms think about and, you know, use our experiences to just prepare and be better for next time. So Ala and Amy, you've shared so much guidance throughout this episode, but boil it down for the listener, boil it down for me. What are your, your, you know, two to three recommendations for leaders around this topic, this important topic of planning for resilience? You know, there's been some silver linings uh, that came from the pandemic. One of them is executive sponsorship. We've been doing a survey with the Disaster Recovery Journal for many, many years. And for the first time, it usually sits around 87%. It jumped to 94. And more actually report that that sponsorship is significant. So that's great. We just have to keep the energy going. Now that we've hit our pandemic, we got to make sure that we're ready for what's next. And the thing you got to do is test all the plans, create all the plans. Oftentimes firms either don't have the plans in place or don't test the plans. 47% of organizations never do a full simulation. So like Jacoby Medical Center did in their parking lot, 47% of firms don't get there. Means that they're not actually testing in a real live simulation, the handoffs and the complexities of a plan that might happen. So test all the plans. What we found from our survey was also that for the first time, climate change beat out risk over IT for the first time. And like we talked about, the world is interconnected, may not be a pandemic. It may be something like uh, hurricanes or wildfires that knock us out in our third parties, for example. So we really have to be ready with all the plans and the testing. Yeah, and I'd say risk management maturity or the maturity of your program, I I want to say that um, everything we've experienced has helped us be able to um, mature our thinking around it, but as well as insurance companies that are now, you know, saying we're not going to be the catch-all for your lack of risk management. And so 
their pricing policies based on how mature organizations are managing their own risks. And, you know, um, we see that in New York State, the New York State Department of Finance has instructed uh, their insurance companies and created a framework that says, you know, we want you to evaluate systemic risks, evaluate things like silent risks, and price policies accordingly. So because insurance policies are becoming more expensive and because they're maturity-based, I think that's something that would, you know, will help organizations start thinking about how did they improve. And the last thing is actually a a bit of um, a flip side to this, which is that those organizations that have been taking this seriously have the plans understand the importance of resilience can actually start using risk you know as a uh, as an opportunity because we don't necessarily we don't manage risk to get rid of all risks we manage our risk so that we can take the right risks and so that we're being compensated correctly for the risks that we're taking on. And when we think about, you know, organizations' um, risk appetite and their business strategy, those companies that are innovating, that are growing, that are disrupting, they are taking on a higher level of risk, but it's being done in a managed sort of way that then gives them that competitive advantage. So I would say, you know, use risk as an opportunity. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.